The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So a graphic novel that I did in 2006 called American Born Chinese. And my dad, he said he liked it, but I don't know if he totally understood it, though. Because that's one of the things about being an immigrant's kid is that your experience and your parents and your grandparents' experiences are like three completely different experiences in three completely different kinds of worlds. So we had conversations about it, but I never really got the sense that he knew where I was coming from. But there are things about what he went through that I would never in a million years be able to understand either. My name is Junlun Yang, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. For AAPI Heritage Month, we wanted to share a mix of conversations that bring the Asian American experience to life in powerful ways. Even though we try to be more of an American podcast, featuring lots of minority voices for all our majority ears, sometimes we just got to lean into the Asian side of things. And as you already know by now, Raman can't help bring up his love of comics in every conversation he's a part of. I'll admit, I was always a little bit skeptical about his comics geekery. I used to think that comics were only about the superheroes and capes that we see in movies. But I've come to discover and appreciate they are so much more. A powerful storytelling medium just like TV and film. So this month, we wanted to do something special. Sharing some past conversations about some of the best Asian American comics and comic book creators out there. Honestly, getting to talk about and with creators whose works moved us is one of the perks of our show. Maybe you heard these before, or at least have heard us talking about them, but if you enjoy these conversations, please be sure to show your support by picking up their work wherever you get your favorite books. Got a suggestion for something we should check out? Email us at mom at modmypod. We'd love to hear from you. So this week, we're continuing our double features. First, talking with the Asian American comics creator, and a few days after that, talking about the book in depth. This week, our chat with Jean Lu Yang, one of the most celebrated Asian American comics creators. Since next week actually marks the release of the new Disney Plus streaming series, American Born Chinese, based on Yang's seminal graphic novel of the same name. This new show might seem niche, but it's going to be a big deal. It's also co-created by the directors of Shang-Chi and features many of the stars of Everything Everywhere All at Once, which swept the Oscars this year, in case you hadn't heard. And in a few days, we'll air the very recent Quarantine Comics chat 
Raman and Ryan had about not just the comic American-born Chinese, but how they reflect on their own American-born Asian experiences and the impact of Jean Lun Yang's body of award-winning work that they've covered. So let's jump right in for our chat with award-winning graphic novelist Jean Lun Yang. Jean, welcome to the pod. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Roman. Thank you, Sharon, for having me. Jean, I like to think you're pretty damn famous, at least in my world. <laughs> and, but, and for, for the record, he never says pretty damn famous, Jean. So that means you are pretty damn famous. I, I We can literally quit the podcast after this episode. I'm convinced. <laughs> but Jean, I, I, guess... I don't know if that's totally true, dude. I feel like... I, Comics is a very small world in a much, much bigger universe, right? I, I did say in my world. I'll couch it with that. <laughs> but Sharon knows who you are, so that means something as well. I do. I do. I guess the question we want to know, and a lot of folks want to know, is uh, where are you from? I am from California. I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I, I feel like I've lived my entire life in this hour radius. So I, I grew up in the South Bay I went up to the East Bay for college. I spent my early adulthood in the East Bay and I've slowly migrated back. So now I live like, I don't know, 15 minutes away from my childhood home. That is nuts. Well, I I hear there aren't a lot of Asians out in California, but I guess, do you ever get the (laughs) follow-up question? Where are you really from? I do. I I mean, especially from other Chinese people, right? Because like Chinese people want to know where your parents are from. So my mom was born in mainland China near Shanghai. And then my dad was born in Taiwan. My mom's family left mainland China when she was just a baby. She spent her childhood in Hong Kong and and Taiwan. And eventually both my parents made it over to the United States to the Bay Area where I was born. Well, so growing up, like me, I know you were into comics like crazy, but what did you actually want to be when you grew up back then? My very first aspiration was to become a Disney animator. I remember watching cartoons on TV. There was like this cartoon called Gummy Bears. Do you remember that yeah. cartoon? <laughs> yeah. They had the juice. So yeah, yeah. with the juice. The juice that gave them superpowers. Yeah, that was a Disney cartoon, right? And I yeah. love that cartoon. I loved a whole bunch of them. Uh, I also loved watching Disney movies in the theater. And, and that was like my life ambition. I wanted to, to animate because at, at the time, you know, before I discovered comics, that was the only way that I knew of telling stories through drawing. But then when I bought my first comic, when I was in fifth grade, that all changed. Throughout high school, I think I was debating between the two, whether I should go into animation or, or go into comics. What did your parents want you to do? Or to be when you my parents wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer <laughs> those were i could be anything i wanted as long as it was in one of those three categories so how did you reconcile that then yeah because this this is like their worst nightmare then like <laughs> yeah yeah no no immigrant parent dreams of their child becoming a comic book creator right that's for sure right. well right before i i went to college my dad sat me down and he was like if you major in something practical, right? Like biology or computer science, something like that. Then you could do whatever you want. After you graduate, you could be a garbage man if you want. Those were his actual words. And I won't say anything. I won't care. And and like later I found out garbage men actually make like they have health insurance. They have pretty good <laughs> salary, right? But but I did. I ended up majoring in computer science and I minored in creative writing. And and for a while I was a computer programmer. So that was my very first job out of college. I was a 
software developer for a tiny little company in Emeryville. And I did that for about two years. Then I quit and I became a high school teacher and I started taking comics more seriously. I began self-publishing my own comics at around the same time. So my dad, true to his word, didn't say anything. But every six months, he would send me this envelope. And inside this envelope would be like these little newspaper clippings, right? There would be want ads from Apple Computer, or there would be articles that would compare teacher salaries with programmer salaries. Yeah, every six months, I'd get these little little envelopes in my mail. Little nudges, just little Little nudges. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) At what point, because I kind of went through this with my father, at what point did he kind of acknowledge or admit to understanding he got what you did or he accepted what you did? You know, because for a while, my parents could not describe what I did in corporate America, right? Like, because I had this engineering degree and I was using it to do these weird things, but this massive company was paying me money. Like, in terms of the, the cartoonist work that you were doing on the side at the time, was there was there a tacit acknowledgement? Was it when you first got published, et cetera? It was definitely not when I first got published. No, no, not at all. It's it's funny. I, so I stopped getting those little envelopes after a Chinese language newspaper called The World Journal did an article about one of my graphic novels. So a, a graphic novel that I did in 2006 called American Born Chinese. So shortly after that, part of it, yeah. <laughs> the, the World Journal put out this article. And, and when I went to go visit my dad, he had actually clipped out that article and put it in this little plastic sleeve. And after oh. that, I never got another wow. envelope of clippings again. Well, so that book is semi-autobiographical. And I'm selfishly asking this question now. And I, I mean, I know there's a lot baked in that book. And, you know, you won the Eisner for it. It's, it's a seminal work. And it's being adapted by Disney now. But did your dad react to some of the things you were saying? Like the the realizations of what your life must have been like based on kind of what you're portraying with with kind of the three characters in the book? Well, first, thank you. Thank you for reading it and saying all those really nice things about it. <laughs> he read it and he, he said he liked it. I don't know if he totally understood it though, right? Because his, mm. I mean, that's that's one of the things about being an immigrant's kid is that your experience and your parents' experience are so different. Your, your, yours, your parents, and your grandparents are like three completely different experiences in three completely different kinds of worlds. So I, I think he, like we had conversations about it, but I, I never really got the sense that he knew where I was coming from. But that, I mean, I felt like that's fine. That's like, there are things about what he went through that I would never in a million years be able to understand either. And I'm totally skipping ahead, but how does it feel to know that you wanting to be a Disney animator as a child, writing this book, and then fast forward to today, Disney's about to create a a film out of it. Like, how does that feel? You've totally come full circle. It feels really surreal. It feels kind of nuts. I mean, when I was in high school, you know, I was still debating whether I wanted to do comics or become an animator and actually i was like collecting disney comics at the time too i was collecting yeah. like, scrooge and mickey mouse and, and donald duck i used to wear like at least one mickey mouse on my body at all times like it was either <laughs> like a mickey mouse watch or a t-shirt i had a belt buckle i had underwear like my friends all knew it so anytime like they wanted to get me a, a birthday present they would give me something with like a mickey mouse on it so to go from there to, to now I don't know. It, it feels really surreal. Like, I don't know if I feel like I could really believe it or like yeah. let my mind rest on that until 
the first episode airs, you know, like I, I just, it's so, it's really hard to believe. So a lot of your books, uh, and again, it's not all of your books, but I think there's an element of, no pun intended, code switching that some of your characters have to be really damn good at, right? And would you argue, is that like the original secret identity move? Is that like an original superpower? Like, because you, you, I feel like you explore that a lot in your work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's embedded into what a superhero is, right? Like the whole genre was created largely by these children of Jewish immigrants from Europe at a time mm -hmm. where it was not awesome to be of Jewish descent. So mm -hmm. Superman got to start in the late 1930s, right around the time that World War II was getting started. And I, you know, I don't know if, I haven't read enough about Siegel and Schuster to know if they did this consciously or not, but I think that whole idea of having two identities, of being one person at work and, and somebody else yeah. outside of work, just felt like it was like drawn directly from the Jewish American experience in the 1930s and 40s. So right there is like, that's what it means to be an immigrant. Like Superman himself is literally an immigrant. Yeah, the ultimate immigrant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Like he's he's from farther than any of our parents came, right? <laughs> and his 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 culture is weirder than any of, of our home cultures. Right. So it I, I just think it's there. And even when you have like a quote unquote all American kid like a Peter Parker, that idea of hiding who you are is still there. It's just it runs all the way through the entire genre of stories. Superman as an alien, as an immigrant You've won the Eisner, which is like the Oscars for comics a few times. And one of the books that you won it for was Superman Smashes the Klan. And it was an adapted on an old radio drama. And you really do pull forward the idea of Superman being a foreigner. Was that conscious embedding that in? Or was that from the source material as well when you did that? Yeah, that was definitely was a choice a guru hero and I made was to, yeah. to put a more emphasis in that. And, and really, it's just how I come to the character, right? When I was a kid... I was not a huge Superman fan. I liked the Christopher Reeves movie, but when yeah. I was actually buying my own comics, I very rarely bought yeah, Superman. Yeah, X-Men were way cooler than Superman. Oh, oh my gosh. So, like anything in the Marvel Universe was cooler than Superman, yeah. right? Like the very first comic in my collection was a Superman comic, but that was because that was the only comic off of the spinner rack that my mom would let me buy, right? Because he was the best behaved superhero. He was like the, the <laughs> upstanding citizen. So it wasn't until later when I really thought about the the structure of who he is as a character, where he comes from, that I, I came to appreciate him. And now I'm a huge Superman fan, but it was, it was exactly that. It was like realizing, I felt like I had to see that my parents were cool before I could see that Superman was cool, right? Like my parents, mm. I, I thought that they were the same kind of dork that Superman was like, they just went to work every day on time. They did their jobs quietly. They never broke any rules. They barely ever sped on the highway. And then later as an adult, I realized the reason why they do that is because they took this huge risk in coming to this country and establishing themselves in right. a culture that doesn't speak their language. In, in some ways, they try to be the perfect citizen so that nobody can ever question their citizenship. And right. I think that Superman does the same thing. I think Superman presents himself as the perfect citizen so that nobody will question his citizenship. Clark Kent is the most boring Miltos. He is. And a guy. Yeah. yeah. That's right. The most That's harmless, right. the most, yeah, the most vanilla in so many ways. 
Yeah, yeah. But it, it, he's both, right? He's the most harmless, and he's also the most dangerous. He's yes. the one. Yeah. Like, Bamek can rage out, and no one's going to wonder if he belongs or not. But Superman sure. can't do that. If Superman rages out, they're going to try to... It's over for all aliens, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. They're, they're going to try to get rid of him. They're going to try to shoot him off the planet. Well, so... I have to ask, like, you have two types of characters, and I really want to understand kind of, I know writing every character is different. You know, some of your characters have autobiographical elements, obviously American-born Chinese, and of course, you're a character in Dragon Hoops. But then you've had the privilege and the opportunity to step beyond your self-creations into things like Superman, things like modernizing Shang-Chi for Marvel, even adapting Avatar, The Last Airbender. But you've Put a little bit of your own spin on some of these. I mean, most notably, you created the Superman of China, Kong Kenan. Like, was that DC saying, hey, Gene, make us a Chinese Superman? Or was it, hey, I want to try this. How would the PRC do it? It was the former. <laughs> it was DC. <laughs> DC Susan called me up and he, they're like, we, we want to make a Chinese Superman. What do you think? He's and the guy. Here's the guy. When, yeah. Yeah. They actually, it was really funny. It was kind of cute. It was actually like an editor that I had worked with before. He, he called me up and we'd known each other for a while, right? Before he said this. And he was like, okay, don't be mad or offended, <laughs> but we want to do a Chinese Superman. What do you think about writing it? And, and at first I turned them down. I was like, that actually, I just thought it was a stupid idea. You know, for a billion different reasons, I thought it was ridiculous. But I got called into the DC offices. I had this meeting with Jim Lee, who is yeah, a big an icon. at DC. Yeah, yeah and, and an icon in the American comic book industry. And he was like, you know, this was actually my idea. I wanted a, an Asian Superman character in the DC universe as part of the Superman family. And after we talked about it a little while, I'm a huge Jim Lee fan, right? And I was like... I can't say no to this if it's his idea. So I ended up writing it. And it was so fun. It was like, that was like the most fun I'd had in the DC universe up to that point. It was well, great. Because you could do whatever you want. I think the feel I got was, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it my way. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. They, they totally just let me run with it. They let me introduce new characters. I felt like I got to kind of push the envelope. I remember submitting to them that I wanted to do a North Korean Aquaman. And I was expecting them to be like, wow. oh, that sounds ridiculous. And wow. they let me do it. They totally let me do it. <laughs> I was like, the final member of the Justice League of China is actually a North Korean. Yeah. So how much of yourself is in these stories? When you're coming up with new characters or even when you're reinventing existing ones? I mean, I, I think that most writers will pull from themselves for every project that they work on. And, and part of that is just, it's easier, right? Um, yeah. There's these three different kinds of research that you have to do. There's research, like by reading books, there's book research, there's research of imagination, we're trying to imagine something that didn't exist before. And then there's research of memory. So for that research of memory, that's like the easiest one out of those three. So I think for even when I'm working on like somebody else's IP in somebody else's universe, like the DC mm -hmm. universe or the Marvel universe. I'm still pulling pretty heavily from my own experience to tell those stories. Do you feel like you have secret powers that we don't know about? <laughs> I, I do not. I wish I did, but I definitely do not. <laughs> Something, you know, both Superman Smashes the Clan and Dragon Hoops came out in a pretty shitty year. So first I want to thank you for having really great works come out that were kind of moving and touching 
and probably a pretty difficult time for a lot of us. But in Dragon Hoops, the thing that really kind of struck a chord with me, um, as you know, so many people are kind of in their own transition of career and thoughts, is the story arc of you and your career. You were, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that moment in time when you're researching the book, but you're also being courted by DC and you're now making the decision? I, I The pie chart that keeps showing up through the book, it's like burned in my mind because I've been thinking a lot about that myself lately. Can, can you talk about what was going on and how you had to make these decisions with your family and your wife to, to yeah. kind of take the plunge? Yeah, that decision really freaked me out. So I had been at Bishop O'Dowd for 17 years. I was a high school computer science teacher. I was part of a community that I really loved, that I still love, you know. And at that point, I was part-time there. So we were on a block schedule. And my week looked like I would go to Bishop O'Dowd one day to, to teach. And then the other day, I would stay home and I would work on my comics. And that just felt like the perfect balance for me. I, I lived like that for, I don't know, like eight years, maybe, or nine years. And... And I, I, I was really reluctant to let it go. You know, I was reluctant to let go of having people to eat with at lunch. I was reluctant to let go of health insurance. I was reluctant to let go of a steady paycheck and of being a part of the school community where I was just really comfortable. I felt at home there. But then this DC opportunity came along where they offered me the chance to write Superman. And this was actually the third time that they had approached me. I didn't talk about this in Dragon Hopes, but I turned them down the last two times because it would mean that I would have to leave my day job, right? But this was Superman and I just felt like, I don't know, I felt like this was not a thing that I could turn down. But but it was still really freaky. Like a, a few things that played in that decision. One was I had these long talks with my wife and she was very supportive. I ended up following this team, you know, this basketball mm -hmm. team mm -hmm. and, and watching the, the courage that they showed. And, and you were and you were that doing was, that for a graphic novel project. For a graphic novel, yeah. For a graphic novel that I was planning to work on while also teaching at yeah, that the, the indie graphic novel, not the, not the mainstream paycheck graphic novel, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and so I felt like that played a part. But I also did go to therapy. Like I, I went to, I don't know, like six months of therapy to talk through all of my fears before I, I made that choice. So all three of those strands, these long conversations with my mom, the following this team, and then also going to therapy myself, I ended up making that decision. And it was like, it was super hard. Like, I remember going into my principal, telling her that I was going to be coming back. And then for the next week, I, I couldn't really sleep. I couldn't really eat. It felt like I had gone through like a breakup, you know, like the, the yeah. last time I felt like that was when like my girlfriend and I broke up, like right before college. Like it was like a really emotional thing. And I kept having these doubts about whether I made the right decision. But now, like, I mean, it's been a few years. I, I think it was the right decision. I mean, there are lots of things that I miss about that community, but I am happy with the way things have turned out. Do you ever feel different or do you ever feel, I mean, you're in such a unique space and you're so accomplished at what you're doing. Not all of us have the privilege of, of kind of, you know, immediately, not that, not that your success was immediate, but, but really finding that fit right away. And I'm just wondering if there are moments when you've, encountered challenges or setbacks or and what that's been like for you on your journey yeah absolutely absolutely like when i began working on comic books i was not expecting to ever do it full-time you know yeah. at the time i wasn't interested in working for the big two superhero comic book companies either so this was like the late 90s 
And the industry itself was not in a good spot. So Marvel was not the behemoth it is today. It yeah. uh, had declared bankruptcy. And some people were thinking that it was just going to blink out of existence. And mm -hmm. if Marvel had done that in the late 90s, it would have taken out all of the comic book stores in America. So the whole industry would have just collapsed into this burning heat. So that was the, the scene that I was entering into. Right. And I just thought, I love comic books. I'm just going to make them as a hobby, right? I'm going to have a full-time career as a high school teacher. I'll have yeah. summers off. I'm going to work on comics during the summer. That, that was my plan. And I think that like one of the big obstacles early on was just having the energy and the willpower to finish. And, and I think I was very lucky because pretty early on, I fell in with a group of other cartoonists in the Bay Area and would get together once a week. We would talk shop, we would look at each other's work, you know, critique each other, give each other encouragement. And if I hadn't found them, I don't know if I would have had the energy and the willpower to finish anything. So because I was hanging out with them, because I kind of wanted to impress them, I ended up developing the stamina to finish longer and longer works. But all the way through, like, I remember before American Born Chinese came out, I was thinking, I'm going to put this out. This is something that's been in my heart. I had just mm -hmm. had a kid and I was thinking maybe after this, I should go find something else to do. Like some other way of right. combining marketable skills like, you know, computer science with art. And then it happened. And I think what's great about the community that you formed is that you held each other accountable. In, in that way, right? Like by having a, a regular way to check in with each other and to look at each other's work and to have a sounding board, you knew you had to show up the next week with something better or with like the next chapter of whatever it was that you were developing. And I'm sure that yeah. was helpful as well. Yeah, that's right. That was super helpful. And they were really inspiring. Like they're uh, amazing artists. I think they definitely affected my taste. So yeah. we would recommend, you know, graphic novels to each other. And a lot of the stuff that I read based on their recommendations, really affected how I saw the medium, like mm. what I thought of as possible within comics. So all of them are still in comics in some ways. So Derek Kirkim is one of them. He's working on a project with Image Comics right now. Jason Shiga is doing a bunch of kids' graphic novels, which are all mm. amazing. Like, I, I think he's a genius. Lark Pian it, ha, has been doing work for Marvel and DC. And Jesse Ham, who recently passed away, he was doing a book for Dark Horse and he was doing some, some work for Marvel as well when, mm. at the time that he passed. So over the years, your platform has gotten bigger and bigger, right? You went from a teacher who is creating comics, kind of telling the stories that you wanted to tell. Then you became a comics creator, working on some of the biggest media properties, right? Then you got the legit bump by becoming a MacArthur Grant recipient, a nationally ambassador for young people's literature. And again, now your IP is going to be on Disney Plus next year. I guess as your platform's grown, how do you, how do you think of that like great power? With great power comes great responsibility. You know, how have you used your powers for good, or or what's the temptation to use those powers for evil more to kind of push the gene agenda? Yeah, I, I think about this a lot too with, and I, I talk about it with my wife. World domination, you talk that with your wife. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, I just talk about like, like, what does it mean to have this kind of career? What does it mean to be doing art and how are things going to go? I, I think it's very helpful to live with 
people who are who are critical. <laughs> like anytime we have four kids, anytime I show them one of my books, they always read it and they finish it and they hand it back to me and they go, "Dad, that was pretty good, but I think Raina Telgemeier is still better." Oh no! Jane, I'm sorry. I really and you are one of my top indie creators, but my daughter reads Raina and she's too young for it. But oh, Raina is like way better. <laughs> yeah, Raina is amazing. Raina is amazing. I, I mean, I think to be honest, like when I when I approach a book, I try not to think about anything except for getting the reader from the first page to the last. Right? How do I get the reader from the first page to the last? And if I can do that, I, I feel like I've accomplished something. So for something like Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi has become like this worldwide phenomenon. And it's amazing to get to be a part of that. But I would argue that a good chunk of the people who buy the Shang-Chi comic that I'm working on are buying it not necessarily because of my writing, right? They're buying it because the movie was amazing. Sure, And sure. there's like this glow to it. So to, to be a part of that, to get to tell stories to even that audience is a privilege. It's great. And so your, your kids have your, their opinions about your work. They I'm do. curious to know what you think they would say they learned from you. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, our, our youngest is nine. And the other day, I like really wanted her to just tell me that one of my comics was good. You know what yeah. I mean? So I was like, yeah. okay, so out of all of my graphic novels, which one is your favorite? And, yeah, and then I was gonna have her name with the favorite, and then tell me why. So I said, and then she goes, I, "I think it's Dragon Hoops." She thought about it for a little while. She was like, mm -hmm. "I think it's Dragon Hoops." I was like, "Really? Why do you like Dragon Hoops so much?" And she said, "Oh, because I'm in it," <laughs> which is true. She was, she was in. It. So I I would hope. I don't know. I I can tell you what I try to teach them. I we'll we'll see if it takes or not. But I think one of the things that I learned in my career is that it's important to finish. You know, I mm -hmm. think. Anytime you work on something creative, you go through this cycle. At the very beginning, you're super excited. It's kind of like falling in love, right? You're super excited about it. It seems like the, the best and the shiniest idea that has yeah. ever come into your head. And then you start working on it and you start hitting all of these problems. And somewhere like maybe halfway to three-fourths of the way through, you feel like quitting. Like some yeah. other idea comes up that is shinier. And, and when I was in high school, like I was drawing comics, but I never finished anything because I would always quit at that point, partially because I was hanging out with those, those other cartoonists when I was in my twenties, I eventually developed the stamina to finish. And really all that is, is like ignoring this voice in your head, telling you that what you're working on is garbage. Like you just have to, mm -hmm. like, I think when I was in my twenties, I expected at some point, Oh, I'm going to get to a place where I don't have that voice in my head anymore, but I still right. have that voice. Like I just, like just earlier today, I was working on a script and that voice came up and I think you just have to ignore that voice and, and push all the way through. So I've tried to do that with my kids. Like when they're working on a project, if they get to a certain point, I would say if they get like 20% of the way through, I kind of force them to finish. Even if they feel like the end product is going to be garbage. I, mm -hmm. I try to force them to finish. Like I, I'll sit down with them. I'll try to talk through the problems with them and I'll try to get them to the finish line. Like a hundred percent of the time when they get to the finish line and they look back on it, even if they think it's not a perfect project, it always turned out better than they were imagining it would. So my son did a project that took several months for him to put together almost a year. It was a card game that he ended up kickstarting. I saw him go through that trough, like that dip 
where that voice had a yeah, really loud yeah. in his head. And, and we were able to get through it. And then my daughter did a bunch of sticker sheets that she now sells on Etsy, our, our oldest daughter. And she also went through a period where she was about to quit. And I sort of just try to, I, 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 I make it so that they don't quit. That's, that's my thing. Cause I want them to, I want them to get used to the feeling of finishing. Well, and, and pushing through that, those blocks in the middle, because some of it is just filling the sheet of paper because it's easier to edit and revise. But if you don't fill the sheet of paper, you'll never get to that point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In order to get to the end, you often have to give yourself permission to create bad work, right? And, yeah. and often, like, the work that comes out that you feel is bad, when you look back on it, it's not as bad. It's at least fixable. At the very least, it's fixable. Mm-hmm. It sounds like your kids don't have to be doctors or engineers or lawyers, but is there a pressure or a subconscious pride for them to be creative? Oh man, I so I keep asking them if any of them want to become animators or cartoonists, and all of them tell me no. They're all oh, interested no. in some kind of art, but like my son was like, "Your job seems so tedious. You draw the same thing over and over and over again. Why would I ever want to do that?" So he's interested in art, like he draws, but he's in college now. He's a freshman, and we have kind of the exact opposite conversation as me and my dad, you know, so he's majoring in computer science and he goes to Rochester Institute of Technology, which is known for both technology and art. And they have all these amazing majors. You know, they have like a new media major that is sort of about interface design. They have all these amazing like combined technology and art majors. And I was like, why don't you do one of those? And then he looks at the curriculum and he goes, the coding is not hardcore enough. I want the coding to be really hardcore. So he's like doing a just a standard, like a straight up computer science major because he wants that hardcore coding. So I keep pushing him though. I keep pushing him like, you don't want to do just a little bit more art, but we'll, we'll see <laughs> how gotta, that goes. Gene, you've got to start clipping things out of the newspaper yeah. <laughs> and sending it to him in an envelopes. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's a great idea. I'm going to do that, Sharon. I'm going to start doing that. Oh, you need to like uh, clip it and then take a video of it and put it on TikTok and then tag him. I think that's what the kids are doing these days. That's great. That's a great idea. What are you most excited about or maybe most worried about when we think about the future? Oh, there's so many things to be worried about, I feel like, you know, and I can't, I, I, I don't know if you all have this problem, but I can't tell if it's actually as worrisome as I think it is, mm-hmm. or if it's just like I'm looking at it through some weird Instagram slash Facebook slash Twitter filter where yeah. everything gets ramped up more than it actually is. So I don't know, like, is it the end of America or is it the end of the world or is it the end of humanity? Like right. all of right. these, like, I, I feel like, you know, when I was growing up in the eighties, maybe in the nineties, these questions felt very far away. Right. And now I feel like they feel a lot more plausible. I don't know if empirically, like, there there are bad things, but I do think it's cyclical, our perception, these kind of booms mm. and busts of, yeah, we, we were all of age in the 90s, and you even look at, like, the fiction, like, Star Trek The Next Generation was, like, the most optimistic thing. You look at all the work coming out of Marvel and DC, even if the darker stuff, you could afford to do that, because everything was awesome, right? But I just I like to think we're at a lull, and we're going to turn a corner at some point. I just don't know where that corner is. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you're right. I think I think I think that's a really hopeful way of of thinking. What I've been thinking about a lot is 
like there's only one end, you know, like the end of anything, there's only one. And when you're in the middle, you don't know if you're at the end or not. But if you place a bunch of bets along the timeline yeah. and, and you're betting that it's the end, you're always yeah. going to be wrong except once. So I think the way to move forward is to just bet that it's not the end and, and to move forward with the hope that it's not the end. So if it's not the end, then how do you build for the future, right? How do you make things better? Assuming that you're in the cycle, how do you make things better? So I, I guess that's where I'm trying to find hope these days. That sounds good. When you said that, I was thinking of a roulette table and just putting my chips on like every six numbers or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put your chips everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Gene, if you could send a newspaper clipping with the Sharpie note back to your younger self, what would you write in that note? What would you tell your younger self? I would tell my younger self not to worry so much. And, and that a lot of the things that you're anxious about now will work themselves out as you get older, that the worrying isn't, doesn't, doesn't do much. And I guess like, I, I can imagine that my 60 year old self would give that same note to me now. Right. <laughs> and to be honest, the, the other thing is like, I do feel like by nature, I'm a pessimistic person, but if you look at the world of storytelling, if you look at the world of American storytelling, the kinds of stories that we're telling the kinds of characters that are being featured, it is really an exciting time, right? Like the, the fact that you have such a diversity in every sense of the word is incredibly hopeful. That's great. Well, Gene, we've covered a lot. Are you ready for speed round? Okay, I'll try. No Here one's ever go. ready. No one's ever ready. <laughs> <laughs> what is one thing about you that nobody expects? Um, that I have an extra vertebrae. You do? <laughs> Supposedly, I my my doctor when I was in high school told me I have an extra vertebrae. I've never gotten that confirmed by another doctor. But, there, there's a professor uh, in uh, Westchester County named Professor Charles Xavier. I'll refer him to you. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> what is a? Uh, I'm just going to turn this question to a comic book one. What's a? What's a comic with characters that you relate to? I well, I could I could tell you the one I'm reading right now. It's called Cyclopedia Exotica. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you know that book? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's super fun, right? And I feel like there's a lot about that book that I feel like I relate to. What is your favorite mom dish? She made this Chinese barbecue pork, and she she would only do it on special occasions, but it was amazing. Yum! Awesome. Yeah. What's your least favorite food? Squash. I hate squash. <laughs> I like it as soup, but in, in no other other form. My my wife makes fun of me for that. That one squash. was said with like such authority. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> so yeah, much disdain and disgust. Like, yeah, gross. <laughs> Who is someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast? You know, I would love to get that crew together again on a podcast. You know, that the crew that I hung out with in oh yeah in, when I was in my twenties. So it would be Jason Shiga and Derek Kirkham and Lark Pian. Like I've, I text with them each individually, but it's been a long time since we've kind of gotten together as a group. Are they still in the industry? Are they still working? They in are. They are. Yeah. All of them are involved in comics and uh, yeah, in some way. I would totally well, listen to that podcast. Well, Rumin has a podcast called Quarantine Comics. Sounds like a panel. That oh, you guys awesome. All be on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice plug Sharon that's great that, that I found a lot of joy in reading people's quarantine comics pretty early on in, in yeah. the shelter in place it was yeah. great well Gene last question what does being a modern minority mean to you 
I think the minority experience, what I, what I found in my own life is that it's actually ironic because I think it's more common than not that people have been in a, a, an experience in, in a situation where they find themselves as the minority. So I, I just think that if you use your own minority experience in the right way or in the generous way, it can really be a way for you to build a connection with somebody else to understand where somebody else is coming from. So in this really ironic way, the minority experience, I feel like is becoming more and more universal. And it's a way for us to connect with each other. I love that. That's kind of why we do this show is to hear where other people are coming from for people to kind of hear someone else's experience. And I think that's something you do in your work a lot. Uh, I think consciously and subconsciously, the independent stuff and the big stuff. And I love the fact that the world is getting to know the work that you do more and more every day, Gene. So I hope you'll keep making it for us. Thank you. Thank you, Roman. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you both for, for having me. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.